0: Good afternoon. My name is Father David Troutman. I'm the rector at Trinity Anglican Church right down Jackson Street as you're heading out of town towards Tallahassee. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you, not on a happy occasion, but on an important occasion. It's on this day that we remember a body on a cross, vulnerable, naked, exposed, Reading the passion of Jesus should make us uncomfortable. That's because on the cross, it wasn't just Jesus being exposed. It was us. Jesus being exposed on the cross exposes the fundamental lies of humanity. When the truth is laid bare on the cross, it exposes the lies we tell ourselves So that we can feel better about ourselves. Perhaps one of the most prevalent lies we tell about ourselves is that people are basically good. That we are basically good. And this is a partial truth, right? We were made in the image of God, we are the crowning act of His creation. We're part of God's good creation. But are we basically good? In 1974, Marina Abramović tested this hypothesis that people are basically good. At a gallery in her native Belgrade, Serbia, she laid out 72 items on a table and invited the public to use them on her in any way they saw fit for six hours. The experiment was meant to reveal how a crowd would behave when faced with no repercussions for their actions against a passive individual. She wanted to see if people were basically good. By the end of six hours, she had a very clear answer. All of her clothes had been cut off her body. Razor blades had been used to cut her on her face and all over her body. She had been sexually assaulted multiple times, and someone had even pointed a loaded gun at her head, threatening to kill her. The people doing this to her weren't criminals. They were normal people, businessmen, bankers, lawyers, doctors, grocery store clerks, people just like you and me. They assaulted her and brought her this close to being murdered in front of a crowd. But the most astonishing thing, to me at least, is that no one in those six hours intervened. No one protected her. No one put a stop to it. But maybe that isn't so surprising. After all, no one stood up to protect Jesus 2,000 years ago. You know, in our culture, we like to talk about the moral majority. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. And it certainly isn't what the crucified Jesus reveals. We are an immoral majority. All of us are sinners. Jesus' body hanging on a cross is a painful indictment of humanity. If this is what people who are basically good do, I would hate to see what basically bad people do. Even Pilate, in our story today, who seems convinced throughout the entire passion narrative that Jesus is innocent, does nothing to help him. Look at the beginning of John 19 we just read. It says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And then we read, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Did you hear that? Pilate flogs him, has him brutally beaten and mocked, and then says, Yeah, he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. In fact, Three times in the Passion narrative, Pilate declares that Jesus is innocent. And still, he has him crucified. But you know, it's hard to blame just Pilate when the whole crowd is shouting for Jesus to be crucified. One of the things that is so troubling about the Passion is that we never know quite where to pin the blame. Who is at fault? for Jesus' crucifixion? Is Judas to blame for betraying Jesus? Is it the disciples who don't stick by their man when he's arrested? Is it the chief priests and Pharisees who have conspired against him? Is it the crowd? Is it Pilate? Well, maybe the answer is yes. It is. All of them. And all of us. Isaiah writes, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John tells us that the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and that many of the inhabitants passed by Jesus on the cross. On the day Jesus was crucified, I wonder how many people saw the grotesque spectacle of a tortured human and then quickly looked away, hurried about their business. We have turned everyone to his own way. This past Sunday on Palm Sunday, in my tradition, we try to identify both with the crowd that shouts, Hosanna to the King of Kings. And also with the crowd that shouts, crucify him. But I wonder, I wonder if it would be more honest for us to identify with the crowds that didn't say or do anything. The crowds that turned to their own way and rushed past. It's so easy to overlook the suffering of another. And this brings me to the second lie exposed by Jesus on the cross. It's the lie that gets repeated so often in a day that it would be impossible for us to count. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. Jesus' suffering not only reveals our callousness towards the suffering of others, it reveals that we live in a state of denial about our own suffering. That's why it's so uncomfortable to look at the suffering of others. That's why we change the channel. You know, Christianity is the only world religion that contemplates the reality of suffering and death every single week. Many of us even wear instruments of execution around our necks to remind us of this, a cross. We would think a bit odd if people went around with electric chair earrings or guillotine bracelets. But somehow we think nothing of wearing a cross. And as a priest, I can tell you that the number one gift I receive from family and friends is a cross. Maybe people think I particularly need to contemplate my death. That's why they give it to me. And yet, despite all of our crosses, I'm surprised at how often we avoid or pass over the central question that the cross raises. Why this suffering? Why does it seem like God has forsaken us? Because it's only when we face our own suffering that we begin to grapple with reality. One of the redemptive purposes of suffering is to interrupt our busyness, our distraction, and even our self-preservation. God often uses our suffering to get our attention and reorient our lives. In an op-ed piece entitled, What Suffering Does, David Brooks explored the place of suffering in life. He writes this, When people remember the past, They don't only talk about happiness. It is often the ordeals that seem most significant. People shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. And it is this profound mystery that many of us intuitively grasp, that suffering has redemptive value. And what I mean by that is this. God never intended for any of us to suffer but he redeems our suffering by using it to bring us back to him and make us more into the image of his son. Suffering has value. Brooks writes, recovering from suffering is not like recovering from a disease. Many people don't come out healed. They come out different. They crash through the logic of individual utility and behave paradoxically. Instead of Pulling back from the sorts of loving commitments that almost always involve suffering, they throw themselves more deeply into them. The suffering involved in their tasks becomes a fearful gift and very different than that equal and other gift, happiness. Suffering, which was never what God wanted for us, is used by God to form us. So, why did Jesus suffer? He suffered so that we could receive the antidote for suffering, the removal of sin. In our sins, we removed ourselves from God's presence, from his provision, his protection. And so God made himself present to us in Jesus. God in Jesus fully identifies with us in our deepest moments of anguish and suffering, and even in feeling forsaken by God. But he identifies with us for a purpose. And the purpose is, what, is that it is precisely on the cross that we discover that God has not forsaken us. It's precisely by seeing the suffering God that human suffering begins to make some sense. It is precisely when we see how inhumanly humans treated God that we see that God is human. God became human for us. And so it is on the cross that Jesus is revealed as fully human and fully God. St. Augustine, in one of his sermons, describes this paradox far better than I have or ever could. He puts it this way. The maker of man was made man, that the ruler of the stars might suck at the breast. That the bread might be hungered, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be wearied by the journey, the truth be accused by false witnesses, the judge of the living and the dead be judged by a mortal judge, the chastener be chastised with whips, the vine Be crowned with thorns, the foundation be hung upon the tree, strength be made weak, health be wounded, life die. To suffer these and such like things, undeserved things, that he might free the undeserving. For neither did he deserve any evil, who for our sakes endured so many evils. Nor were we deserving of anything good. We who through him received such good. In other words, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The solution for sin is a sinless God. The solution for suffering is a suffering God. I uh, hate splinters. I feel like I have a high tolerance for pain and I'm pretty tough until I get a splinter in my finger. And then my my wife can testify to this. I turn into a complete whip. I know that when I get a splinter, it will do me no good to just apply a local anesthetic and numb the pain. No, the splinter has to be removed. Or it will just get worse. I know that my finger will feel better once I get that splinter out of my finger. And yet I'm tempted to just numb the pain. Well, sin is like a splinter in humanity. God, in his wisdom, knew that it was not enough to simply remove suffering from the world. He had to remove the cause of suffering, which is sin. God so identified with us by becoming human that he let the splinter... Sin pierced his skin. And then he did the unthinkable. He let that splinter become so infected that it killed him. And he let that splinter be buried with his own corpse. He put sin to death with his own death. Why? I moved down here recently from Pittsburgh. I was up there for about seven years. And in our backyard, there were these two giant mulberry trees. And they seem to have an infinite supply of leaves, especially in the fall. My first winter, there was this one section of my yard immediately beneath the two trees, and there is an early snowfall, and I didn't have time to get the leaves up before they were covered in about two feet of snow. But when spring came, I was really, really busy. And so it wasn't until the very end of spring that I finally decided I was going to go rake up those leaves. So I got my rake and I headed out to where the spot was, where all those leaves had fallen. But when I got there, I discovered that the leaves were completely gone. And in their place, there was this dark, rich, almost black soil. My wife and I planted hostas in that soil, and I've never in my life seen plants thrive as much as those plants did. The rotting death of fall And the desolation of winter had become the new life of spring and the abundance of summer. And this is what Jesus was doing on the cross. The rotting, stinking corpse of Jesus on Good Friday becomes the fertile ground of new life for us. God's answer to sin and suffering isn't a word. It is the word. His response isn't a statement. It's a response. He comes to meet us, even in the places where we feel his absence most pointedly. Even in death, Jesus is there. So today, I invite you to see the suffering and death of Jesus as the destruction of suffering and death, so that we might have life. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all. This is the good news of Good Friday. And we can't get to the good news of Easter without hearing first the good news of Good Friday. Thanks be to God for this very good news. Amen.